glad we conclude the writings of the Apostle Peter as we have them in the New Testament with 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. We consider tonight the matter of an urgent demand. Peter has come full circle. You know, most things that people write that were not written to be outlined do not lend themselves to accurate outlining. Much of Scripture is like that. We've considered in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 the challenge and the responsibility that he laid on us. He told us how demanding it was going to be. He told us what our responsibilities were and then he told us why that was true. And then this morning as we looked at the early verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, he told us of an urgent reality, that being the coming of Christ for the purpose of judging the world. And now he has come in a few cogent words to, to summarize all that he has said in writing to Christians in a day very much like ours when their greatest threats on an, of an immediate fashion were coming not from the world, not from drastic enemies, but from within the church as the word of God was being displaced by man-made things. And here he tells us of the demand that is made on us because of this. The burden of this letter is that time will run out on the lost. The reality of Christ's coming, the reality of the coming judgment places upon us an urgent demand, and that demand is to live our lives and to base everything that we do on God's Word and to be godly or God-like with every day that God gives us. Peter tells us that out of the coming crisis, the cataclysm, the catastrophe, when the earth shall melt and the heavens and the earth shall pass away, that out of that will come a new morning with a new light and new atmosphere and there will be a new home for the people of God that will endure through eternity pervaded by a new and precious spirit of joy and peace that human society has never known. And in the meantime, while we await the day of reckoning, while we wait for God to redeem His own and to judge the world, in the meantime, we are to live as those who have the only possible answer for a world that is lost and dying. Recall in the passage this morning how Peter says God's not slow, God is gracious. He doesn't delay because He's weak. He doesn't delay because he doesn't care. He rather lets time stretch to its outer limits in order that more and more and more may be saved by coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so look with me tonight briefly, if you would, to the text as we hear the concluding words of the Apostle Peter. In verses 11 to 13, Peter tells us that we need to gain a proper perspective on the world and on our responsibilities before God. Beginning with verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed or dissolved, melted in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be dissolved by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says all will be destroyed. There'll be nothing left. And because that's true, how ought we to live? Ought we to live in such a way as though judgment will never come? That's one of the heresies that Peter wrote this letter to combat. Ought we to live as though it didn't matter what we did our lives? No, that's what he's writing about. We ought to live as dying men reaching out to dying men and telling them where to find life. It is the only task that we have. How then shall we live? In such a way, he goes on to say, as to anticipate and even to hasten the coming of the Lord. What does he mean, hasten? Well, I can only conjecture what ran through his mind, but by reference to the Scriptures, we are told that the end will not come until the gospel has reached to the farthest corner of the globe. The end will not come until the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature. Jesus stands in readiness to come and claim his own and rapture them from this world, but he will not do it until everything that the Scriptures predict has happened. And as we carry out the Great Commission, we help hasten as well as watchfully anticipate the day when Jesus shall come. And you know, too long, people who pride themselves on missionary concerns... You know, there was a time when many Baptists were called Missionary Baptist, and that name now refers usually in a specific way to a couple of organizations, a couple of small Baptist denominations. But we have bought our way off. We rejoice in missions, offerings, and we ought to, and we need to make this goal. There's no reason why we cannot administer the work of missions in this nation where it's so desperately needed. I pray that God will allow us to give $10,000 to foreign missions through Lottie Moon this year. But folks, when God says go, you can't spell it give. And there are folks that would walk over hot burning coals to give money to missions who won't go down the street to talk to somebody about Jesus. The Great Commission is for Yukon as well as the other parts of the globe and you can't buy God off. It can't be done. We hasten it as we watchfully and faithfully share the gospel. Then in the latter part of verse 12 and on into verse 13, he talks here of the destruction that is going to come. He quotes again the same thing he has said right up in verse 10. You see, it weighed on Peter's mind that judgment was coming. Peter wasn't playing games. He wasn't biding time until he laid down this tabernacle of flesh, as he calls it in this book, and went to be with the Lord. Peter believed that judgment were coming and that sinners were bound for hell. He has just written it. The heavens and the earth will pass away with a crashing roar and with intense heat the elements will melt. And in just a few words later, trying to give us a proper perspective on what we are to be doing. He repeats it again. He doesn't want us to miss it because it's the truth. The day will come when the heavens will be renovated. 
The earth will be renewed and purified. It will be restored to perfection. There will be at that time no more separation between the dwelling place of God and the abode of his people. They will become one and the same thing. It will be, he says, in the latter part of verse 13, a place of pure and unalloyed, unmixed righteousness. And then notice in verses 14 to 16, here is what I have called a preeminent priority. A preeminent priority. Now back in verse 13 of 2 Peter 2, he has said that those who have infiltrated the church that would do away with the word and its authority are like spots and blemishes on the church. Now in this verse, he says that his readers are to be exactly the opposite. I think it's an intentional thing the way he writes it. It's interesting. For the little prefixes which mean unspotted and unblemished are gone. And in verse 14 he says his readers are to be spotless and unblemished. And so we are to be the opposite of what those who deny the word and its authority are. Peter's readers are to be, as Paul would say, above reproach. Now I want you to notice that Peter didn't say it. Paul didn't say it. Jesus never said, neither anywhere in the Scriptures does it say that anybody who belongs to God is supposed to be above criticism. It says above reproach. You see, the most criticized man who ever lived was Jesus Christ. And I suppose if I've heard once, I've heard a hundred times that piece of homespun wisdom through my lifetime in the hills of South Arkansas and the pine forest of East Texas and down along out in the plains and down South Texas where the humidity is 120% on the coast in Missouri and Oklahoma and Kansas. I've heard it all over everywhere I've been. When criticism comes up, somebody says, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's true. The book of James says the tongue that is uncontrolled is set on fire by the devil. That's the fire. God doesn't tell us to be above criticism. He tells us to be above reproach. He doesn't tell us to be above somebody throwing dirt at us. He says be spotless, be unblemished. You see, there's nothing that we can do but be accountable to God. And you ought not to worry nearly so much about what people think as you do about maintaining a clear and unblemished conscience before God. You know, Jesus said it this way. Why would you... Now, he was talking to, uh, to people about earthly authority. And he said, why would you uh, fear them who might hurt you physically, who would destroy the flesh? He said, much rather you must fear he who has the power to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. We're to be unspotted and unblemished. Then in verse 15, here is another statement of the fact that the writings of Paul were considered by Peter to be Holy Scripture. The word wrote here is in the aorist tense. It is kind of like a past, but it's a past with an extra. It's a past tense, which means when this tense is used, the action written about is in the past completely. And he is saying that Peter wrote in the past 
That must mean there's no other reason for Peter, who was articulate to use the aorist tense, it must mean that by the time Peter wrote this epistle, one of the latest writings in the New Testament, Paul was already dead and gone. And here he equates Paul's writings on an authority, a level of authority with the Old Testament as he did in the verses that we shared this morning. And then in verse 16, Peter tells us that like all the scriptures, the writings of Paul are hard, if not impossible, to understand unless the Holy Spirit enlightens us. Peter points out that it is dangerous to pretend to teach the scriptures without a true knowledge of God's word, without a true knowledge of God's spirit, without the presence of that spirit in our lives in such a way that it illumines us. In Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, the writer to the Jewish Christians deals with the same matter when he says... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for one to teach you the elementary principles of the Word of God, and you have become as those who need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the Word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who by way of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In James chapter 3, you know here is a connection that I did not make when I preached through the book of James earlier this year when we dealt with the James 3 passage about the tongue. And it just points up the fact that the word is inexhaustible. And as I studied this today, God opened this up to me. But notice that James 3, 1 immediately precedes the passage I just quoted a moment ago about the tongue being set on fire by hell. He says in verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we shall incur, incur a stricter judgment. Jesus said it very similarly. He said, To whom much is given, much is returned. Required, And James says, do not be overly anxious to assume a teaching position of responsibility, realizing that those who care for the souls of men will incur a stricter standard of judgment than anybody else will. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, goes on in verses 2 down through most of this chapter to talk of the use of the tongue. Could he be saying that one reason a novice, as Paul would call him in Timothy, when forbidding that such a novice assume a position of responsibility, could it be that James is saying the novice would be too prone to let his mouth run away with him and unwisely influence people away from God by distorting God's Word than rather toward God through the proper teaching of God's Word. I recall, I think, how that feels. I was 16 years old and a preacher boy. 
I was licensed, which I have since discovered really doesn't carry much weight with very many people. And I was doing the music, youth, education, janitor work, and anything else that needed to be done in a mission. Well, the pastor of that mission, who was a college student, and I was a junior in high school, decided that the Lord wanted him to go for foreign missions, uh, summer missions. He went to Burlington, Vermont, town in the northeast where there was no Baptist work. Indeed, at that time, there was no Baptist work in the state. And he was instrumental with others in starting our first work in that state during the summer of 1964. Well, I had preached some few times. I remember the first time I'd preached was in the uh, summer of 1963, and I went out to a little country church and took 13 pages of handwritten notes and preached the sermon in eight minutes. Things have changed. Uh, <laughs> but I had preached a few times, but not very much. And uh, after, by the way, that man is pastor of one of the greatest churches in America today, the Eastwood Baptist Church in Tulsa. Uh, having grown rapidly, baptized 500 people, this association, a year running 2,300 in Sunday school. Joe McKinney's on his staff. Well, when Tom decided to leave, they asked me if I would uh, be interim pastor for about five months. And uh, I was delighted with that. And I remember the feeling as I sat feeling very important in my daddy's study in our big old antebellum house, a 15-room house we lived in, in Warren, Arkansas, upstairs sitting at his desk, swiveling around in the chair, looking out the window at his church. I didn't know how to say it then, but I know how to say it now. I, it dawned on me that now I was a preacher. I'd been ordained by this time, a week after my 17th birthday. I'd been called as pastor of a church, even if only for five months. I couldn't have cared less if it was, you know, the cathedral in downtown Paris or First Baptist Dallas. I had a church, praise the Lord. And it occurred to me that at this point in my life, I should be able to quit preaching other people's sermons and begin to write my own. Well, I did. And they're good for a laugh. I've got several of them in my files. But, you know, it was just that kind of a thing that from one day to the next, in my own mind, I became a preacher. And, you know, sometimes God forbid and God forgive us. That's what we do with people. In our zeal, which is sometimes not according to knowledge, we may push people who really have a sense of their own inadequacy into positions of great responsibility and we say, now, last week you couldn't spell professor, and now you are one, so start acting like it. You know, that's shame. It's sad. And James says it's dangerous because we who handle the souls of men will incur a stricter standard of judgment than anyone else will. Heresy is born when unlearned and unsteady, and those are the two Greek words that... Peter uses in verse 16. Heresy is born when unlearned and unsteady people begin to apply human wisdom and human logic to the Word of God. It seems to me is always a very dangerous thing to say when you're talking about God's Word. You know, I'm glad that it's kind of passed, and I think Mike is too, but he and I both endured through an era of ministry involving youth work when the big thing to do was to rap. You know what that is, rap? Well, it used to mean what they do when they fix our yards now, but that isn't what I'm talking about. It's rap, R-A-P, without the W. 
And I decided after several experiences rapping that rapping normally means let us get together and pool our ignorance. You know, and it often turns into that. And that's the way heresy is born, folks. You put a bunch of Christians together and turn them loose on the Word of God without proper guidance. And heresy is born when the unlearned... Now, unlearned, that's not an insult. Unsteady, that's not an insult. Heresy is born when the unlearned and the unsteady turn the processes of human wisdom and human logic loose on the Word of God. For you see, while we are in this stage of Christian growth, as the writer to Hebrews mentioned in the verses we read, Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, when we are in this stage of human growth, of spiritual growth, pardon me, we are, we are dominated by feelings. We are dominated by emotion. We are dominated by opinions. Rather than being dominated what Paul calls in one place the wholesome sayings of the Lord Jesus. Now what happens when that, ha when that is done? When the unlearned and the unsteady begin to try to expound and, and build what the Word of God teaches? The word that Peter uses here is translated in my Bible as distort. It's a very colorful word. It means to twist. Uh, it is the word used in Greek literature when one of those most ancient forms of torture was practiced. When an individual was put on the rack, tied all four limbs, stretched out on ropes, and they began to stretch him to see what happens. And what Peter is really saying, his readers would not have mistaken it, that the effect upon God and God's Word when the unlearned and the unsteady began to apply human wisdom to God's Word the effect is that they torture the Word of God until in their own minds it fits in with what they've already decided the truth is. Well, that's a dangerous thing. God loves the Word. God went to unbelievable lengths to preserve the Word. And when it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of ecclesiology, the operation of the church, when it comes to matters of Christian living and matters of theology and matters of evangelism and anything that deals with the Christian life, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. God's already told us exactly what we are to think and if we think in any other way, willfully, as Paul said in these verses this morning, then it is nothing short of rebellion against God. When the unlearned and the unsteady apply human wisdom to God's Word, they force the Word of God to support their position. And Peter says that they do the same thing with all Scripture. Notice that he says those who do this do it, in verse 16, to their own destruction. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 21, 44. He was talking about himself as the great rock, the rock of ages, the rock that was cleft so that Moses could hide in the cleft of the rock while God passed by and he would be preserved. 
the rock that the builders rejected that became the headstone of the temple, God's eternal temple, the rock of ages. Jesus said, if anyone found that rock in Matthew 21, 44, and bounced his head off of it, the only thing that would hurt was him. The rock wouldn't be affected. And Jesus also said in the latter part of John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. You see, our agreement or disagreement, our adherence and acceptance, our rejection and rebellion toward God's word isn't going to change anything except it'll destroy us spiritually. Peter said they do this to their own destruction. And it is indeed possible, indeed there would be no heresy unless countless millions through the ages had approached the word of God like a cafeteria line, taking what they liked and leaving the rest, building a system of theology and faith and practice that ignored the plain and honest teachings of the word. And then in verses 17 and 18, here is what I have called a powerful protection. Peter has said all of this. We are demanded to build our lives on God's Word and to live godly lives. And he has said all of this, and now he says there is a powerful protection for you. And the protection that he is talking about is we move day by day in the world that we live in is very simply a fuller and more complete knowledge of God and His Word. In verse 17, he says, because you know this beforehand, you know in advance. Peter says, I have told you that false teachers are coming. I have told you that heresy is coming. I have told you that in the last days they will not endure sound doctrine. Because you know this in advance, be on your guard. Don't be surprised. Don't weaken. Don't compromise. Because compromise will destroy your effectiveness. Charles Spurgeon, in writing of this passage, said this, we grow in grace as we grow in knowledge. For everything that we learn by experience about God's Word and then apply to our lives enables us to grow within the grace of God. So the way that we are to grow in grace you know, grace is unmerited favor, but Peter joins the two. Let us grow in grace and in knowledge. Spiritual growth must be cultivated through discipline. There must be prayer, Bible reading, Bible study, Scripture memory, because the only way that we get to know Him better is through His Word. That's the way we get to know God and to understand Him better is through His Word. By obedience to His Word, by adherence to His ways as we understand them. One commentator put it this way, there is no standing still on a hill. If you're trying to go uphill, you either keep moving or gravity will begin to weaken you until you fall backwards. And our real alternative is either to grow or to digress. 
That's our alternative. You know, it would be nice to have a rest from spiritual warfare. It would be nice to be delivered from demands. It would be nice to be released from conflict in the spiritual realm if we could just get to a certain point and then tread water, but you can't do that. In the physical world, plant life and animal life, and these are the kinds of illustrations that the New Testament uses all the way through to describe the Christian life, the developing life, the life of growth. And in these worlds of plant and animal life, when growth ceases, the processes which lead to death set in. And so our alternative, spiritually, is to grow or die. Very simply, to grow or to die. Now, in the physical world, if there is life in the first place, and if there is health, then growth is automatic. You see, we talk about growth as if it were such, some kind of a mysterious thing. But if there is life, if life is really there, if an individual is really saved, and if there is health, if there is a relationship to God of confession and repentance daily, of abiding in His Word, of praying and speaking to Him, of hiding His Word in our heart, if life and health are present, then growth will result always, always. And so the lack of growth demonstrates an absence of health or an absence of life. There must be, if a plant is to grow, there must be rooting. Do you know that there are many kinds of plants that draw their nourishment from the air? I wish my wife hadn't discovered one kind of them. They call them airplane plants. You ever see those things? make you think the spider-men have invaded the world. And you know that airplane plant will grow over here and grow over there and go up and down and anywhere you string it and it'll just keep going. And that plant really draws what it needs from the air. But if somewhere that plant isn't rooted in the soil, it'll die. Now, I don't know how to explain that, but that's the way it is. And if any kind of a plant is going to grow, it has to be firmly rooted in its native soil. So if we are going to grow, we have to be rooted and grounded in love, as Paul said in Ephesians 3. Then there must also be nourishment. For wherever it comes from in the plant or the animal world, there must be nourishment. And our nourishment is the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but he shall feed his spirit on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, there are some tests that Peter suggests in the course of his writings. There is the test of love. He commands us to fervently love one another. He tells us that love covers a multitude of another person's sins, and the absence of forgiveness is not the absence of forgiveness. It's the absence of love in the presence of hatred. Very simply, there is the test of love. There is the test of what we outgrow. Folks, if in your spiritual life you're still fighting the same battles on the same level of temptation that you were fighting a while back or years ago, you're in trouble. You see, in spiritual growth, you don't get past problems, you don't get past temptations, but the battleground changes. 
If you're still fighting the same battles that you've always fought, there's been no growth. The devil's had no need to go on to higher kinds of problems and temptations in your life because he's always got you at the same place. There is the test of victory over temptation. Whatever the battleground, there is to come a time as we grow when we are able to stand and having done all, as Paul says, merely to stand. And having submitted ourselves to God, as James says, then we resist Satan and he flees from us. There is the test of Christ-likeness. And I suppose this is the most misunderstood thing that the Bible says about God's people. You know, often the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, applies a term to people who belong to God. The term is godly. Do you know what it means to be godly? It means to be like God. Now, that's not a tough concept, is it? Nitpicking, picky unishness, being dominated by little things are not godlike traits. Nothing is more abhorrent to God Almighty than legalism. Nothing. Nothing. He used the most moral and religious people on the face of the earth as the examples of the worst kind of sinners in his day. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ walked and visited and worked freely among prostitutes, thieves, and murderers. He would not associate with the scribes and Pharisees. He said they have their reward. He said the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit makes alive. And the test of Christian growth is godliness. It is the most unmistakable and the most misunderstood. To be godly means to be like God. Realizing that we are liberated and free from many kinds of responsibilities as the scriptures affirm that every one of us alike will answer to God, but none of us answer to each other. These are tests that Peter gives us. Growth is the unfailing answer to all of our spiritual problems. For if we grow, we will go beyond the problems. Oh, there'll be new ones. The warfare will be intense. We'll get away from the skirmishes and into the heat of the battle. But recall, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And a Christian is safe in spiritual warfare if he's there at the call of God and according to the will of God. But if he's in a place of peace and safety out of God's will, he's on dangerous ground. Here is a powerful protection to grow in grace and knowledge. Now, sometimes growth is architectural. Uh, Paul talks sometimes about the building of a building as growth. Sometimes growth is physiological for the scriptures say that Christ is the head, but we are the body growing up into maturity the, to the measure of the fullness of his stature. Sometimes growth is zoological, for Jesus uses the, uh, the plant illustration, I am the vine and you are the branches. But whatever the illustration, the idea of the growing, developing Christian life runs all the way through the Bible and especially the New Testament. Peter, notice, does not call for perfection. Oh, no. 
He doesn't call for never making a mistake. That's not possible. Rather, he calls for growth, for a moving in the right direction. And it is true to say that no one will ever attain to the ideal Christian life. That's true. But you know, I found that most people's problem is not attaining to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Most people's problem is doing what they know they ought to do. And that's what we're accountable for is what we know and what we are taught and what the Word of God says. It is demanded by our day of false religion. It is demanded by the coming of Christ to judge the world that we live lives which are godly based on and directed by the Word and the ways of God so that we by all means might win some to salvation and to faith in Christ. May we pray. Father, I thank you that your Word never cuts us loose and leaves us floating. Lord, I'm glad that Peter ended where he did, for he did not stir us to action and then leave us without direction. He did not rouse our minds to alertness and, and then leave us all ready for battle and nowhere to go. Rather, he told us that it is demanded by the times in which we live and by the fact that Christ is coming to judge the world that we lay aside all sin and the weight which so easily besets us and we press forward looking to Jesus who is the author, the finisher of our faith. Father, I pray that you might give every Christian in worship tonight a desire that, that will not be quenched to know you better, a desire to be like Christ, a desire to be cleansed, to be restored, to be part of the body that is healthy and not diseased, to be a stone in the building which is in its place so that the structure will not be endangered, to be a branch in the vine so as to bear fruit and then to bear more fruit and then to bear much fruit. I pray that you would show us both what we are and what we need. That we would find from you the answer and the solution to every heartache, every confusion, every sin in our lives, every need for commitment, every weakness, every failure. Give us what you have provided for us for no reason other than your love which knows no limits. Draw from this people the kind of commitment that will make them such as can stand on the word and reach the world for Christ. I thank you that you will, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing hymn 349, Have Thine Own Way. I don't know your heart or your need. Whatever God would have you do tonight in response to his word, in commitment to his way for your life. Do it right now. Do it quickly.